I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. With a holiday week in the U.S. upon us, we're taking a break from our usual routine and bringing you something special. On this episode, we're sharing the recent flash call we held after the election with a panel of both CBRE thought leaders and independent experts in a roundtable moderated by yours truly. We discuss commercial real estate in context of current events, the pandemic, and policies affecting the industry across sectors, markets, and demographics. We look back at the challenges of 2020 and forecast a recovery into 2021 and beyond. Our guests feature CBRE's Global Chief Economist Richard Barkham and Head of Global Occupier Thought Leadership Julie Whalen. We are also joined by Ryan McCormick, Senior VP and Counsel of the Real Estate Roundtable, and Cece Yang, Director of Global Markets for Hudson Advisors. A quick production note, this was recorded on November 17th with everyone gathered remotely on a Zoom call. So the format may sound a little different than our usual program, but truly it's filled with some enlightening perspective and analysis. Without further ado, a special presentation of our flash call. That's right now, on the weekly take. Ryan, let's get right down to it. We just had a presidential election. We have a new president. We congratulate President-elect Joe Biden. But tell us what we do know and what we don't know politically about what's going on in Washington right now. Great. Well, thank you, Spencer. It's great to be with you and the CBRE team. So it's a very narrow election. It shows, uh, to state the obvious, it shows we are closely divided. You know, much of the attention has really gone to the result at the top. But I think possibly more important are the down ballot results. And here you can say that Senate Majority Leader McConnell and Senate Republicans really overperformed. And even if Democrats you know, win those, both, both those Georgia Senate races, which we're all watching very closely, it's gonna really be a majority in name only because there will be Democrats in the Senate who come from states that, that Trump won. I'm thinking of Joe Manchin from West Virginia, John Tester from Montana. And then in the House, House Speaker Pelosi and House Democrats really uh, underperformed uh, to the point where she, she's likely to have a, a working majority of only five to seven votes. Um, so all this kind of creates a major check on some of the ambitious ideas proposed during the, the campaign. I think it puts a premium on where common ground and bipartisan agreement can be found. I, I suspect there'll be a lot less emphasis on divisive wedge issues. So what's this mean for real estate real quickly? I think it's generally quite positive um, you know, from a governing standpoint, I think our industry, uh, the sweet spot really kind of falls there between the 40 yard lines. It's when you kind of get the most durable policies and legislation, you get greater certainty. Um, and so there'll be a reduction of policy risk, particularly in the tax area. And a lot of the, uh, the policy agenda we're focused on, which you know, we can get into uh, in a, a little bit later, it's really areas of that aren't, we would argue are nonpartisan or bipartisan. So I think from a, a standpoint for the industry, it's, a, it's a really quite a positive outcome. So Ryan, let me re-emphasize one point, just to clarify, because this is a question we got from several people in the audience. Even if the special elections in Georgia both go Democrat and Senate control flips to the Democrats, your answer doesn't change. You still believe that we are largely going to have a very uh, favorable business environment, at least for the next two years. I think that's right. I think the, the power center is shifting and, and uh, you, know, you can watch cable news and you think it's very much with some of the most progressive voices in the Democratic Party. But I, I think regardless of those Senate races, 
uh, the, the center of power is really going to be much more in the middle and with some of those votes that can go either way uh, on any given issue. And I think they're going to be quite reluctant to, um, you know, to go with some of the more aggressive policies that were advocated by uh, some of the presidential candidates and even Vice President Biden. Well, last question for you, and then I'm going to pass it to my good friend and colleague Richard to talk about the economic impacts of this. But I think the one political slash economic issue that we're all looking at is the amount and the timing of the stimulus. What's your current point of view, Ryan? Yeah, so the roundtable, I think we're, we're quite pessimistic that they're going to get this done during the lame duck session. So between now and, and January 20th, they're in session this week. Congress is, they're out next week, and they come back for just a couple weeks after that. I, I will say that the, the president-elect has turned up the volume. He is speaking more forcefully about the need to get it, something done. Um, but lame duck sessions historically underperform expectations. I think we'll be back here. In terms of size, you know, the range right now is kind of 500 billion in the Senate, 2.2 trillion in the House. Uh, I would suspect we're gonna land somewhere closer to the Senate, somewhere closer to a trillion or so, you know, give or, give or take. I don't, I don't think we've got that same, uh, in light of some of the more positive developments on the vaccine front, I think it's gonna be tough to get a $2 trillion uh, bill enacted anytime soon. Well, thank you, Ryan. I'm now gonna turn to my uh, good friend and colleague, Richard Barkham, Global Chief Economist, America's Head of Research. And Richard, um, the politics uh, just changed in America. Uh, but we recently put out our 2021 outlook. So given the changing political environment, given the vaccine, tell us about our outlook and how those factors may have impacted it. I think the presidential election, uh, as Ryan alluded to, was a vote for centrist policies. Our working assumption, I think, is that we will get one trillion of stimulus, not perhaps as much as uh, some people had hoped. But enough, I think, to see the economy through in what is a very nicely developing uh, economic recovery uh, and not enough, importantly, to put, put pressure, upward pressure on the long end of the market. So I think just enough. Um, and I think just enough, particularly since we've got, uh, you know, some some brilliant news on the vaccine, frankly, which we see one uh, or possibly more being licensed by Christmas. Um, and then rolled out in Q1 and Q2 next year so that we get to around 100% vaccination by Q2 next year. So our outlook for 21 is really shaped by that centrist policy, modest stimulus, vaccine deployed. And I think, you know, we're looking at, uh, at economic recovery. We've penciled in 4.5% GDP growth for next year, but it could be higher than that. Um, it will be back weighted. It will be weighted towards Q2, Q3 and Q4. And once the, uh, the, the vaccine is deployed, uh, we can see, you know, uh, you know, the return to the office picking up. It won't, won't be complete by the end of the year, but it will be started. And we will see um, uh, business travel picking up again. It, it won't be anywhere near back to 2019 levels, but it will be coming back. And all of those industries that were badly impacted by COVID, bouncing back into a life probably a lot more vigorously than people expect. So that's our outlook for 2021. Now, Richard, is it, would you go so far as to say there is now light at the end of the tunnel? That's how strong the vaccine news was over the last two weeks. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. But I think we might just be entering uh, the dark before the dawn. Um, certainly, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. But I think um, uh, th there is a big flare-up in the virus in the United States, and that's going to bring a certain amount of lockdown, which is a headwind for Q4. 
We've also got quite intrusive lockdowns in, in Europe, and Europe is 35% of the global economy. So there's a headwind there uh, in terms of global demand. Um, and, you know, we've got that great big bounce in economic growth in Q3. You, you just can't get that every quarter. So I think probably the news flow turns negative before it turns positive in Q1 and Q2 next year. Thank you, Richard. I'm now going to turn to Cece Yang, our friend from Hudson Advisors. Cece, welcome. And Cece, if there's any silver lining in the COVID-19 tragedy is that interest rates, particularly the long end of the curve, dropped substantially. But we have seen a significant uptick, particularly at the long end of the curve recently. Uh, what does this mean for hedging costs, uh, foreign capital flows coming to the U.S.? We take a look at the U.S. Treasuries uh, as an indicator of strength. Thanks, Spencer. And, and that's right. I mean, markets over the past two weeks have reacted to reflect this likelihood of a more constrained Biden administration um, that may be more reactive than proactive on the fiscal policy front. But then you also have this dynamic of optimism that there may be light at the end of the tunnel um, that given the vaccine news. Um, so in terms of moves in Treasury yields, we initially saw a significant fall amidst the initial uncertain post-election period, which suggested the markets did start pricing in a haircut on the size of fiscal stimulus. But over the past week, we've seen long-term rates rebound and sell off on the back of the positive uh, vaccine news. And 10-year Treasury yields is hovering a little bit below uh, 90 basis points today. That being said, on the flip side, when we talk about hedging costs, that is um, very much also driven by short-term and medium-term rates. And on that front, the Fed's been giving very strong hints that more fiscal stimulus is needed to keep the economic recovery on track. And if fiscal stimulus uh, is more limited than what the Fed would prefer, this leaves a bigger role for the Fed, potentially more QE for longer, and possibly an even further delay on the next Fed hike. Um, and as a reminder, the Fed currently forecasts that they're gonna be on hold until the end of their forecast horizon at uh, year end 2023 as per their dot plots. So they're already forecasting short-term rates to remain um, quite, quite uh, bound to the zero bound for quite a long time. Um, so, so what does this mean for hedging costs? Currency hedging costs are driven by interest rate differentials between two currencies, and low U.S. rates translates to lower costs for foreign investors looking to hedge the currency risk of their U.S. investments back to their home currencies. Um, now, we already saw significant hedging cost declines from the beginning of this year when U.S. rates fell significantly in the flight to quality and Fed easing on the back of the onset of COVID-19. Um, just to give an example, the five-year annual hedging cost for euro-based investors in the U.S. has fallen 100 basis points this year to 1.2% uh, today, while it's fallen 50 basis points um, to 0.6% for South Korean investors in the same time period. Um, there probably isn't that much more room for these levels to fall further, but given the you know, likely expectation of accommodative Fed policy, it does feel like the lowered currency hedging costs are generally here to stay in the, long, uh, in the near term. Well, Cece, if I could sum it up, is it fair to say that from a foreign investor, or at least most foreign investors standpoint, the United States is on sale today, and that's likely to continue for some time. It feels like that. It Spence, feels like that. Spence, Fred Richard. Yeah, I know. It's very interesting. I, I totally agree with what Cece said, but I don't buy that 
um, interest rates at current levels through to 2023. I think they'll, they'll be moving up in 2022, not much um, in the absence of another economic shock. So um, not, not something that we should worry about now, but, but, but you know, something that we'll start to think about through 21. But you don't see interest rates spiking above uh, 3%. Maybe, maybe they get to 2%. Is that a fair statement, Richard? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. no. 3% is kind of off the, off the cards. All right. Well, now I'd like to uh, go to my good friend and colleague, Julie Whalen, our global head of Occupier Research. Uh, we've got a lot of Occupier clients on this call today, and we welcome all of you. Julie, what are some of our occupiers thinking about the outcome of the election and how it might change some of their decisions, whether it be um, in, by industry or by location? Yeah, so, you know, based on what all of the panelists have said so far, I think that there is a generally positive backdrop for our occupiers today. You know, they are in a stable earning environment where it doesn't seem like policymaking is going to be terribly disruptive to them. And there is hopefully going to be strength in our economic recovery. Um, so I think that there are some decision-making, you know, trends that they're going to have to follow that are honestly trends that we saw before COVID. Um, you know, in terms of their location strategy, I think that there is definitely a flight to the suburbs. Millennials had already been aging up and out of the urban core. And now that trend has obviously been accelerated given the effects of the pandemic on urban cores. And similarly, um, secondary markets have really seen an uptick in population and business growth over the last decade. And through people seeking quality of life and organizations going to seek talent where they are. And so I think that those two trends are certainly significantly going to continue. Um, and that is going to drive, you know, the occupier decision making in terms of where they are going to try to find talent in the future. Well, well Julie, I agree with you on the me mega trend of people moving from the New York, San Francisco to some of the southeastern Texas, southwestern markets. But I'm not sure I'm completely with you on the suburban trend. I certainly agree with you from a live standpoint. But work standpoint, I don't think there's enough evidence yet. What evidence are you seeing that occupiers are going to move their workplaces to the suburbs? Yeah, so I think over the last decade, again, the trend of, of large corporates has been to centralize into the urban core. And I think that the urban core still holds a lot of weight in future portfolio strategies. However, what I think is going to change is the centralization aspect of it. So what our occupiers are signaling to us is that not only are they looking at a different mix of markets to source their talent from in the future, but they're also trying to figure out where should locations within the markets that they're already in, um, how should they be more distributed going forward? Um, the idea of sort of long commutes to get into a place of work driven by sort of a predated nine to five schedule is changing. And the reality is that employees are exercising more choice and more autonomy over where they work. And so organizations are trying to figure out, is their real estate strategy gonna change basically to meet their employees where they are? So if they have large contingents of the population in the urban fringe, maybe they start to set up locations in the urban fringe, either through flexible office space or through their own space, if they have enough of a need to satisfy those people being able to have a place to go in and do undistracted work. At the same time, though, the urban core is still very important because it is going to be the best central place in the future for people to come together, to gather, to collaborate 
which is what the role of the office is going to need to satisfy in the future. So again, we're very bullish on the urban core. However, I think that there are going to be satellite and other locations that support that in the future. Great, thank you, Julie. Spencer, this kind of gets into the policy uh, issues as well, because we certainly hear frustration from from property owners whose uh, tenants, businesses, employers in their buildings are really not comfortable coming back. because they don't have that framework of certainty about what their risks are on the legal front and and liability and business issues. So we talk about the the COVID relief legislation and and stimulus bill in terms of kind of the fiscal support for the economy, but there's some key policy issues there in terms of liability protections that we think will be part of that and be really helpful in the short term in creating an environment that's more conducive for people to get back into the the workplace, whether it's retail or or office. I think you particularly see this in office settings where people can work from home. They'd rather have them in the office, but there is that kind of risk of uh, liability issues that people really don't have any uh, clear certainty on yet with the pandemic. Well, Ryan, let's keep digging on that issue because I think what you're suggesting is that in the bill is pandemic risk concerns or at least some short-term liability shield uh, for employers for COVID, which is one of the things that the roundtable is working on. But based upon the questions that we've gotten from the audience, there are other specific issues that people are concerned about, including the 1031 exchange, including carried interest uh, tax treatment, will it be capital gains or ordinary income? Why don't you walk through where we are on the uh, pandemic risk insurance and some of these other key issues for commercial real estate? Um, well, sure. I'll talk about one that we're, you know, we're actively trying to, to advance at this point, which is this concept of of pandemic risk insurance. And that's a little bit longer term. So there's a kind of a growing recognition that that it's really better to plan and prepare now for these future economic risks associated with pandemic related and other kind of potential government shutdowns of the economy rather than just wait for the next time. Um, And so at this point, two dozen industries, companies uh, representing about 50 million workers uh, and not just real estate, we're talking about the restaurant industry, entertainment, movie, gaming, hospitality, uh, that have created a business continuity coalition to develop a plan here. Um, and the, the concept is it's fairly straightforward. It's kind of a public-private business continuity insurance program so that in the event of a government shutdown in the future, it will enable employers to kind of keep payrolls and supply chains intact, protect jobs, reduce furloughs, um, but I would say this is very much in the early stage. I think this is going to take some time, just like the terrorism risk insurance program post 9-11 took some time uh, to get into law. But we see it as one of those long-term issues that is going to be really important. And it, it bubbles up because we see increasingly that tenants are seeking some protection in the event of future government shutdowns from lease payments and rental payments. And so the property owner is looking for uh, some kind of insurance coverage uh, in the event that... Um, you know, there, there, is a, there, there are risks that arise there. Um, you mentioned uh, the tax issues. So a lot of tax, issues, uh, tax proposals got thrown around leading up to the, the election. Not unusual, we've, we've saw those in the last time around as well. Um, I think that the, uh, for the most immediate term, the next several months, the focus is really gonna be on, we have a weak economy, we're trying to stimulate, we're trying to bring those 10 million jobs that were lost back. So I think some of those risks are, are not as great. Um, but once you get past that, certainly uh, President, Vice President Biden, now President-elect, had about a $4 trillion tax plan going into the campaign. 
we'll have to wait and kind of see what he really seeks to advance. Uh, we're optimistic on like-kind exchanges. I know we get those questions as well. Is Congress going to repeal Section 1031? I just emphasize that this is a provision that's been around since 1921. Um, it's been I would say litigated, prosecuted by Congress on multiple occasions, and it has survived at least for, for, for real estate. We think it's particularly important during periods of economic stress, and when you dig into the, the economics of it, it's pretty positive for, uh, for spurring investment and capital expenditures. So um, we're bullish there. Carried interest. Uh, carried interest wasn't talked about so much because the vice president talked about uh, raising the capital gains rate to parity with ordinary income. If you have the same capital gains rate as you have with ordinary income, carried interest doesn't, is, is no longer an issue. Um, but that, you know, that issue we think will be you know, part of the debate. But again, I think there is a real uh, check on the ability to, to, to pass a significant tax bill in, in this environment. Well, one other tax issue, which I think it's fair to say we don't know the answer to either, uh, and it goes right to Julie's point about the movement of people from um, high tax places to lower tax places, the SALT tax deduction, which was eliminated uh, in the uh, Trump tax plan of, of a couple of years ago. Um, do you think there's any chance of that coming back? I think it's tougher with the election results because you, we, we thought we might have Senate Majority Schumer, uh, Majority Leader Schumer from New York, who has made this a, a key issue for him. Uh, that's not the case, at least for the immediate future, depending on what happens with these Georgia races. But, um, you know, you could conceivably see some kind of deal made where you have some temporary maybe increase in the SALT deduction. That's what's in the House stimulus bill currently, is a temporary suspension of the cap on the SALT um, deduction. But, you know, I think, uh, I think it's going to be tough, and I'd put the odds pretty low at this point for, for changes even on the, the SALT deduction. Great. Well, thank you, Ryan. Let's turn back to you, Richard. Let's go to real estate and uh, talk about fundamentals and capital markets values. Given the changes that we have seen uh, politically, vaccine and otherwise, what is our outlook uh, for the major asset classes fundamentally and from a capital markets perspective? Well, maybe I'll kick off with capital markets um, because, uh, you know, one of the, and I speak as an economist, one thing we've seen in this uh, crisis is just how much quantitative easing the Fed has done, but also the, um, the, the, the European Central Bank and the other central banks around the world. Again, I've, I've used this term wartime. It's a huge increase in quantitative easing. And what all of our econometric models are picking up um, is, you know, previously, I think it was just kind of the bond rate and fundamentals that drove cap rates. Uh, but now I think it's the bond rate quantitative easing and fundamentals. So I think we've got low bond rates, we've got a huge increase in, in quantitative easing. It is really surprising uh, to, to say it, therefore. I think that the economics uh, points to, you know, cap rate stability or even cap rate compression in certain markets. Now, let's go on to fundamentals. Um, you know, where are we seeing that cap rate compression already? We, well, we're seeing it in the industrial sector. Uh, because I think with the, the jump in uh, internet penetration of retail, um, industrial property has hardly broken step um, in the crisis. We, we talked about this in our early calls, Spence. We thought maybe a year recovery for the industrial sector. No, no more like a quarter, as it's turned out. Uh, a huge amount of um, uh, fundamental demand and a, a huge cap rate uh, uh, a huge pressure from investors. Um, same with uh, multifamily. 
Um, you know, we had thought with unemployment spiking that we would get just a, um, a big drop off in rental collections there. Well, you know, with all of that transfer income, all of that government spending going directly to support the income of consumers, well, we didn't see any real material drop off in, um, in, in collections, some, and there may well be some to come because of this kind of hiccup we've got in the next quarter. Um, but, you know, cap rate downward pressure there, particularly on suburban uh, assets. Um, uh, a bit less so in the big coastal, expensive coastal cities where we're seeing vacancy rate increasing quite sharply. But as an asset class, as a sector, still pretty healthy. Um, retail, of course, um, you know, the fundamentals there, we've seen a, a huge number of, um, uh, of retailers go into bankruptcy, you know, due to the part of the combined effect of e-commerce, but also the, the COVID crisis. So, I mean, the fundamentals remain very tough uh, in physical retail. Myself, I suspect this might be the one, one sector that really surprises on the upside in 2021, just given the weight of money that's in consumers' hands. And, and you know, consumers have built up, oddly enough, huge savings ratios as well. So that can bankroll, I think, some retail. But, I mean, the, the retail will remain vibrant, I think, but uh, in, a, in a smaller footprint. Um, uh, and, you know, some of that will play out in 2021. And then we've got offices, um, you know, and I don't think we're going to see any, you know, uh, uh, any really um, uh, positive fundamentals there till we get people back into the office. Um, and I'm afraid that's going to be 2022. Uh, office will start its recovery second half of this year. Um, so... You know, I think you can you can play it both ways with regard to to cap rates. There, on the, on on the one side, that weakness in fundamentals is going to, you know, potentially see cap rate expansion. On the other hand, you know, the uh, the the opportunity that is America right now, due to the lower hedging costs and due to the the lower currency, and you know, the recovery taking place, you just might see kind of more more pressure on cap rates or more stabilizing pressure from buyers. So that's our kind of fundamental outlook. Um, and it, it's surprisingly, it's surprisingly values have been surprisingly resilient given the nature of the uh, economic hit that we've had. Sure, and I'll give one other uh, green shoot if I can. Uh, Chris Ludeman at the opening talked about the foreign investors coming into the US. Uh, I'm aware of five of those deals all in the office sector. Now they are all net lease deals longer term credit tenant deals, but they're all pricing at or at or near or below in some cases, pre COVID levels. So there are some green shoots, even in office, it is the multi tenanted office space where I think the space is still uh, trying to get to some more price discovery. But uh, Cece, let's go back to you now. And um, when we talk about the election and its results, we talk about interest rates, I want to turn now to the value of the US dollar, uh, which seems to uh, have gotten weaker and may get continued weaker still. I saw the value of the Chinese renminbi this morning uh, at a very strong level. So number one, what do you see is happening to the value of the US dollar and how might this spur additional foreign investment into the United States? That's right. We've seen broad US dollar effects weakness since the elections, um, mainly due to a combination of expectations of an accommodative Fed, as well as positive vaccine news, which supports uh, global risk premium since the US dollar is a safe haven currency. 
And so for foreign investors who don't hedge or only partially hedge FX, this uh, weakness in US dollar could be a good entry point for these investors and incentivize them to invest more in the US today. That being said, if we look at what might drive US dollar valuations in the near future, those same drivers are still going to be in play, which is expectations of very easy monetary policy, as well as hopefully a reduction in risk premium as the global health picture improves in 2021. So we may still continue to see US dollar weakness in the coming medium term. Great. Well, Julie, let me turn back to you now. And uh, I want to go a little bit deeper onto industry segment. And do you have any thoughts on how different industry segments that are in some of, let's just call what it is, more politically sensitive areas uh, may be reacting to the elections from healthcare to oil and gas uh, to military spending? But I also want to ask you about green initiatives, about ESG, about how uh, corporations might be looking towards that as clearly uh, President Biden uh, is much more uh, bullish on green initiatives than was the prior administration. What are your thoughts, Julie? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. Um, I believe that part of that question was also around government contracting. So, you know, I think that we have to really see how spending is shaped basically by who gets appointed into key roles under the Biden administration. I think that it's likely that defense spending may go down a little bit, spending around renewable energy, clean energy may go up. U.S. manufacturers are of course gonna be of top priority uh, when it comes to that. And then you have tech, especially large tech, which is going to remain a focus of antitrust concerns. Uh, that would have been true under either party. So that is certainly a challenge for them in the future. Um, from a regulation standpoint and how it's affecting industries, I think that obviously after a period of deregulation and the sort of clean energy agenda and climate change goals that Biden has, that we can expect environment and energy regulations to affect companies. Obviously, companies that are focused on clean energy versus fossil fuels will be impacted differently. Um, but as far as your question about, you know, environmental social governance, uh, I think that, you know, clearly, like I said, Biden is, has a clear agenda on climate change goals. How that plays out in the face of his first agenda, which has to be the public health challenge, remains a question. But I think it's really important to realize that this is not just a government issue. Um, this is a uh, something that private companies have been working into their agenda for quite a while now. If you look at the total size of the dedicated sustainable investment market today, it's about 100 billion. There are estimates that that could grow to 5 trillion uh, by 2030. And so clearly, you know, this is being driven by public private sector alike, and it is going to impact real estate. Um, CBRE, we just got uh, earned a position on the Dow Jones Sustainability World Index. So from construction to property management, you know, real estate practices can make a really big difference here. Um, and it is something that is going to be clearly uh, high on the agenda of corporate occupiers in the future. Again, not just because of the government agenda, but because it is the socially conscious thing to do that both shareholders and employees alike are looking for. Thank you, Julie. And I think this is a good segue when we talk about the environment, which is clearly a global issue. Uh, the global implications of uh, President Biden and what it might mean for commercial real estate, specifically on the future of globalization. Um, I was on a call about two weeks ago with Parag Khanna, who is uh, one of the world's leading demographers, and what he suggested 
was that the world is going to become more regionalized, meaning more uh, uh, trade with Canada, Mexico, and South America, uh, perhaps less trade with uh, China. Uh, and so, Richard, let me turn to you. What is your point of view on how the Biden administration may bend the curve on globalization? And what does this mean for commercial real estate? Well, firstly, Svens, um, I think that we will see a much less confrontational approach um, from President Biden and President Trump. It's a, a question of style and, and much more likely to uh, work through uh, uh, multilateral channels like the World Trade Organization. Um, but I don't think we will see the Biden administration easing off on China in terms of fair trade practice. And I don't see the Biden administration easing off on China on its kind of geopolitical uh, ambitions. So, you know, we might get a, a change in tone, uh, but we may not get a, a substantive change in policy. And what does that mean? Well, that means, as you have pointed out, American corporates will be, at least the manufacturing sector, pulling back a little bit of their, their supply chains out of Asia, maybe into Central America. And, um, you know, we've got the USMCA, the new trade agreement that's replaced NAFTA, makes that easier to happen. So Mexico, I think, probably stands to benefit a little bit there. Um, but I think the same will be true also of China. China buys goods tech goods from America. Um, the imbalance is quite big. I mean, America buys more from China than America than China buys from America. But China will bring back its, um, its, its trade, uh, its, its supply chain. So I think, you know, those who are interested might want to look at the, the you know, the future for, for um, Japan and Taiwan, for instance, in supplying high tech goods into the China manufacturing sector. So we, I think we do see those regional trade bodies becoming a bit more distinct. But I don't know that I see it particularly in the service sector or the finance sector or the cultural sector or the digital sector. So I think for globalization more generally, probably, you know, it's business as usual, I think, with some some realignment and some hardening of supply chains. Um, and we should, you know, you asked about real estate. Um, I think you know, we might want to have a look at what the impact that might have on the West Coast ports and the supply pipeline uh, chains through West Coast ports. Maybe have a look at more goods coming up from Central America into the Central American um, logistics center, uh, Central US logistics centers and the East Coast ports. I don't think it will be a very massive change, but we might see some shifts in activity there. Well, I'm going to turn now to Ryan for a second, because I think when we talk about regionalization, reshoring, it brings up the very sensitive political issue of immigration. And I know in the commercial real estate industry, uh, we've used EB-5 and other uh, immigration tools to uh, bring capital to our industry. But what I heard from the manufacturing side and speaking to our colleagues uh, in both our incentives group and the labor analytics group uh, is that there's a shortage of skilled labor that um, slows the growth of manufacturing coming back to the United States. So well, where are we on EB-5 and any other immigration matters that might impact our industry, Ryan? That's a great question. You know, I think a lot depends on whether we're able to kind of just hit some singles and doubles kind of for a change instead of just going for home runs with a big, huge, comprehensive immigration bill. I don't think we really know the direction um, that this administration intends to take on that question. I mean, we do know we, they're going to do an executive order, I take it, uh, on day one on uh, deferred action, children and, and, and dreamers in, in the U.S. Um, 
but certainly I think you could find bipartisan support for some policies, some new, uh, more liberal policies with regard to skilled immigration and H-1B visas and EB-5 and elsewhere around there. And the question is, can we get away from this mentality of having to do everything all at once? And that's the only way to kind of approach immigration policy in Congress. And so we're, we're hopeful that we can maybe have more of a piecemeal approach, but Spencer, sorry, I don't have a firm view on, on what uh, direction we're gonna see from this administration on that, that point just yet. But if I could add on the globalization, the other thing we're particularly focused on is in the inbound investor in US real estate. And that's been, you know, there have been some very significant changes in the last couple of years on CFIUS and kind of the reviews that go in uh, under consideration when you have large inbound investments in US real estate. And so it'll be very interesting to see what direction this administration takes there. At the roundtable, we've been really um, worked hard to try and liberalize the rules on FERPTA and try and make it uh, less discriminatory for the foreign investor with regard to capital gains taxes. We had some good luck on that issue. It's a bipartisan issue. That's another one where, you know, things like um, FERPTA, Opportunity Zones, others where there's, you know, potential for bipartisan action. Well, I think you're being a little modest, Ryan. Uh, we should all owe you and the Real Estate Roundtable a round of applause for the terrific work you did on FERPTA, because uh, I know we fought on that issue for years and you guys really made some terrific progress. I know there's still more uh, ways to go, but well done on, on FERPTA. So we're almost out of time here. So I'm going to do a very quick lightning round among my colleagues here for some last minute questions. And I would ask all of you to give uh, very short one word answers, if possible, uh, to these questions. So the first Question is to you, CeCe. The 10-year Treasury is now just under 90 basis points. Where will it be at the end of 2020 and 21? I have to caveat this one, unfortunately. So obviously, it's impossible to predict exactly where the market is going. But assuming the market is looking into a future vaccine in the middle of next year, maybe one to one and a quarter over a course of next year kind of range, we're just going to be kind of limited by Fed accommodative policy. Okay, Richard, same question to you. 10 year at the end of this year and next. I'd go along with uh, CC. Um, you know, not above one at the end of this year, maybe 1.2 to 1.3 end of next year. I've been pretty bullish uh, or at least optimistic on the economy. I would say that all of our forecasts are conditioned on them not being another shock. The economy, you know, these shocks to the economy, they can come out of anywhere. And we're in a pretty weak state at the moment. But, you know, with a fair wind, that's what I would say. Okay, next question to you, Ryan McCormick. The Senate will stay in Republican control, true or false? True, I believe so. Um, of course, I went to predicted the result in Georgia in the presidential election. So uh, elections can always be surprising. But, but right now, I, I think Republicans have an edge there. Okay, very good. Julie, two questions in a row for you. Question number one. Now, Julie, you should know, has been on the lead of CBRE surveying our Fortune 500 clients. These are some fantastic surveys, some of the best industry in the uh, information in the business. But given all that information, Julie, I'm now going to ask you the uh, trillion-dollar question. When it's all said and done, the total amount of office space requirements that will, will be reduced by blank percent. All things being equal, meaning that employment does not grow, I would say 15 to 20%.
However, hopefully office using employment will continue to grow and our office stock and office demand will grow in line with it. Okay, next question for you, Julie. The blank industry is best positioned to ride out the COVID-19 storm and will be most likely to increase its office footprint in the future. So I'm gonna give two answers here. So number one, tech has driven our leasing activity and I still think that tech is very poised to drive a lot of future leasing activity despite what the media might be telling us with their work from anywhere trends. That being said, there are smaller segments of industry like life sciences that are certainly ones to look out for. And if your office building can uh, meet the needs of that specialized type of office space, and that is a home run. Okay, two more questions. Next one to you, Cece. Blank will be the country that leads foreign investment into the US in 2021. And we will see an increase in foreign investment in 2021. First one, if I had to just throw a region out there, probably Europe, because we're seeing hedging costs at lows and we're seeing a very poor economic picture um, as compared to um, economic recovery here in the US. Um, that being said, I do doubt that um, we're gonna see more flows coming to the US on in total, um, just because if we see an improved economic global picture next year with the vaccine, the U.S. is considered a safe haven currency investment zone. Um, and we would generally in that situation see more investment into, for example, EM countries. Well, thank you, Cece. And my last question to my good friend and colleague, Richard Barkham. And sometimes when I ask this question, I go back to my Sesame Street days and try to think of the different letters in the alphabet. So I'm going to go there with you right now. When economic historians look back at the COVID-19 crisis, the shape of the recovery will be a V, a U, a K, or something that, as far as I know, is not even a letter, a Nike swoosh, or perhaps all of the above, depending upon macro and micro. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a V stroke Nike swoosh. That seems to be pretty clear. We've had the V shape. Now we're into the easing off Nike swoosh shape. But I think there are elements of truth about this K-shaped recovery uh, and the company, you know, the country for... Uh, and the Western world, I think, will have to look to making sure that the people who are hardest hit by this just make it through. So um, that, that's what I would say, you know, V, swoosh, and let's keep an eye on that K state of affairs. All right. So three out of the four are the answer, but you, I'm going to nail you down. More Nike than K? Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, no question. We'll go with that. With thanks to our guests and thanks to you for joining us, here's to a happy Thanksgiving all around. For more on our show, check out cbre.com slash The Weekly Take. We'd also love your feedback. So if you found us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or another platform, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Once again, thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Spencer Levy. Happy Thanksgiving. Be smart, be safe, be well.